The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Last night, my kids were watching the Packer game, and they were so amped up. And uh, Corbin and Caleb come up to me, and they go, Dad, when we get older, we're going to be Packers players. And I thought to myself, great, this just adds to my retirement fund, right? My kids are going to be Packers players. And in the excitement, I said, that's great. What position are you going to play? And in unison, they said, forward. (laughs) If you don't get that joke, there's no forward in football, all right? There goes my retirement fund out the window. You know, some people play football for money. Me and my kids, we play it for fun, right? We played in the backyard, we played in the front yard, we played in the living room, we played in the basement, we played in the upstairs hallway. We play almost every single day of the year because we love to play football. We don't get paid to do it, but we love to play football. You know, in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus gives us a call to ministry. You know, there is this myth in the church that ministry is only for the professionals, Only for those who do it vocationally. Only for those who get paid to do it. But what we see is that ministry is for all who follow Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may get paid to do it. It may be your vocation, as it is for me. But for the majority of people, it's just something we are called to do. And we do it because we belong to Christ. Either way. All Christians are called to do ministry. Martin Luther put it this way. He, he described the priesthood of all believers, saying ministry is for everyone to do. If we are a follower of Christ, we are called to be ministers, whether we get paid for it or not. If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. It's page 891 in the Red Bible. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1310. Some time has passed since John 5, uh, maybe even up to a year between the end of John 5 and the beginning of John 6. It seems like these two instances happen at two separate Passovers. And so there's a year that that separates this. And the disciples have been out ministering, and so has Jesus. And now it is time for a break. It is time to take a retreat, to find some solitude and to connect with the Father. A wonderful thing and a glorious thing. But their plans get disrupted. So let's read together John 6, verse 1 through 15. John 6, 1, page 891. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this familiar story, there is much to teach us. My guess is there are things that we will learn in this passage that we don't want to hear, God. A call to ministry that is challenging, difficult, and sacrificial. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, convict us, move us, help us to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, and live a life that's honoring to you and of great joy to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And so it is an important miracle. And there is a great teaching in this to us, to the disciples, one that each of them said this is important for the people of God to know. And so the question is, what is Jesus teaching through this miracle? Well, he's teaching something to the disciples there, but he's also teaching something to the disciples here. He's giving us a primer, a foundation for the ministry that each and every one of us are called to do. And there are three things we're going to see about ministry that are fundamental to ministry. First is the call of ministry. Second, the conduit of ministry. And third, the culmination of ministry. And so we're going to look at these three things, and we're actually going to look at all of the texts and parts from the four Gospels to kind of understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us about the ministry that we are called to do. First, let's look at the call of ministry. Verse 1 starts, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the other Gospels kind of evolved this more. In Mark, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place for, and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus was trying to set up this retreat for his disciples. He said, you guys have been busy, you have been ministering, you have been teaching it's time to get away. It's time to rest. We are tired. We, we haven't even had time to eat. Let's get away. Not only that, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had been beheaded. And so Jesus is processing that. He says, let's get away. Let's take a retreat. But then something happens. A large crowd follows them. They must have seen him from the shore and followed him, and as they passed through the towns, accumulated more people. Also, people may have been on the way to Jerusalem for Passover, but the people were following Jesus. And so when he landed on the shore to have his retreat with his disciples, there they were, 
multitudes of people who wanted more, more people that wanted more of Jesus. And so how does he respond to that? Well, let's first look and see how the disciples responded. In John 6, 5, the second part, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then there's this funny statement. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Philip and the disciples knew, you know what, Jesus, we do not have enough resources to feed all these people, but they should have known better. They saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw Jesus heal the paralytic and the official son. They knew Jesus could manifest bread to feed these people. And yet their response was, send the crowd away. Matter of fact, in all the other three gospels, it is the same response. Send the crowd away. Send the crowd away. Send the crowd away. And I don't think it's because they didn't think that Jesus could feed them. It's because they wanted their retreat time. They wanted their refreshment time. They wanted to be alone with Jesus and with the Father. Not a bad desire. But we can look and see Jesus' response before we get there. I can so much relate to those disciples. I don't know if you can. But I have my day sectioned up for maximum productivity. You know, I go to work, I do my work stuff, I have my sermon prep day, I I come home, I play with the kids, I get them in bed around 8, I fall exhausted on the couch, and then I watch TV for an hour or two, and I fall asleep, and then I go upstairs, and that's my day, right? And so I have this all programmed out. And nowhere in my flesh do I say, I'd like to take some time at night to write to someone who is lonely. Or to give someone a call. You know, let's, let's invite that person over who's lonely. Let's invite them over for the Packers game. You know, in and of myself, I don't say that because you know what? They might actually want to talk during the Packer game. I wouldn't want that, right? Like the disciples, in and of myself, I'm just saying, send the crowd away. Send the crowd away. Send the crowd away. But Jesus responds much differently. Mark 6.34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Luke comments on this as well, says, Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Aren't you so glad that Jesus isn't like the disciples? Aren't you so glad that Jesus isn't like Dan Jackson or like you? Aren't you so glad that Jesus is always open to welcome you, to love you, to pour out his grace upon you, to enjoy you, to to teach you, to heal your heart? Aren't you so glad that that is our Savior? When I was in high school, before I became a Christian, Uh, I was a kid who was hurting pretty bad. And I think many of you can relate to that trouble in home life. And one of the people I reached out to was a young life leader, the ministry I was involved in. And I would just show up at his house on Friday, Saturday night, or I'd give him a call, say, hey, can we hang out? And he had a wife and he had kids. And so now I understand how much more he gave up to hang out with me. 
Some nights he said, you know what, it's family night, Dan, we can't hang out, and that's fine. But so many nights he was willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of ministry, to love me and to care for me. You know, the point of this is that when Jesus calls to us to ministry, he calls us to inconvenience. When he calls us to ministry, he calls us to inconvenience. Followers of Christ are called to minister even when it messes up their schedule, even when they are on vacation, even if they have to miss sleep, even if they are too busy to eat. Jesus calls us to ministry. Now, let me give a brief caveat. I don't want to back off the force of this, but there are also some of us here who say yes too much, right? And so the question is, how do you know? How do you discern that? And I think it does take wisdom and discernment. And one way that you see it here is just the desperation of the people. The people were so desperate that they got up and they took off out of excitement. And they didn't even pack food. They were so desperate. And they came and Jesus says they were like sheep without a shepherd. This could not wait. This could not wait till tomorrow or the next day. These people had need right now. Like Jesus, we should always be willing to minister to those who are desperately in need, who cannot wait to be loved and cared for. Jesus calls us to a ministry of inconvenience. Let me get a little more personal with you, if it hasn't been personal enough. Jacob Swell's membership continues to grow. And as it continues to grow, one of the great ironies is that the volunteer base continues to decrease as well. You know, quarterly we hand out these volunteer forms, sign up if you would like to help. And many times we actually have more people remove their names than actually sign up. Now, this isn't a guilt trip. Sometimes there are good reasons to remove for a season. Sometimes there are good reasons not to sign up. But how about we be honest? What is the real reason we don't want to do it? Is it because we don't want the inconvenience of cooking a meal for someone? Is it because we don't want the inconvenience of giving up part of our day to help someone move? Or the inconvenience of, of watching crying kids in the nursery? There might be legitimate reasons you don't do it. But chances are it could just be because we are selfish, right? Because we have our own agenda. Because we don't want to be inconvenienced. And what we learn here is that ministry is inconvenience. So Jesus calls all of us to a ministry of inconvenience The second thing we learn is the conduit of ministry. Now, again, I pointed out there's this funny dialogue here in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes, Jesus, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then Jesus, it says, he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. He knew he would perform this miracle. He knew he would feed all these people. And yet he says to the disciples, you feed them. That's what's recorded in all the other gospels. Jesus says, you feed them. And Philip responds, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them, even to get a little. So why does Jesus do this? If Jesus knows he's going to perform this miracle, why does he turn to the disciples and say, you feed them, you do it, you pay for it, you get it? Jesus is teaching us that ministry is not only inconvenient, ministry is not only difficult, but ministry is actually impossible. Ministry is impossible in and of your own abilities. Philip says it would take 200 denarii, 200 days wages. Verse 8, 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? What are they for so many? They're nothing. They're not even a snack. Jesus takes us down to show us that ministry is absolutely impossible. It is beyond your capacity to do this. That in and of yourself, you are actually powerless. And so what Jesus is teaching the disciples and then what he's teaching us is that until we see our powerlessness in ministry, we will never access the power for ministry. Let me say that again. Until we see our powerlessness in ministry, we will never access the power for ministry. I have a visual illustration here I forgot to bring up. When I brought these up, people were kind of scared. They thought maybe this was a church discipline thing, but it's not, I promise. What are these? Jumper cables. Okay, we all call them the same thing. Good. I'm from Missouri, so I didn't know if you call them something different up here. But We actually had to use a pair of these on our Thanksgiving trip because we were playing all of these electronic devices hooked up in our, in our car, and we stopped to get gas, and it wouldn't start back up. But when your battery is dead... What do you do? You take this jumper cable, you put on the negative, take this one, put it on the positive, right? And then you say, all right, honey, start up the car. Click, 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 click. Until you understand that there is no power in these jumper cables, no power at all, you will not attach it to another power source. Do you see that? We are jumper cables for Jesus, We're jumper cables for Jesus. There is no power in and of you to do ministry. You cannot take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 men plus women and children. You have to connect it to the power source. You have to connect it to Jesus. So the question is, how do we do that? You know, if you feel powerless in ministry, incapable, unqualified, uneducated, unworthy, outmatched, You are in the perfect position for ministry. You are exactly where God wants you because you can attempt amazing, inconvenient, impossible opportunities for ministry because we don't look to our own resources. We look to the resources of God and we look to the power of God. And so how do we become conduits for God's power? Well, we don't have to look any further than this little boy in this story. John is actually the only one that includes this detail out of all the four Gospels in verse 38. Jesus said to the disciples, how many loaves do you have? I'm sorry, this is from Mark. Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out that we had five loaves and two fishes. Now, John includes the fact that this came from a boy. And this little boy had barley loaves. Now, when you think of a barley loaf, don't think of a loaf of bread. Think of a biscuit, okay? And two fish. And when you think of fish, don't think of big fish. Think of sardines, all right? So this boy had five barley loaves and two fishes. Now, what's significant about barley? Well, barley was for the poorest of the poor, okay? It was, it's like powdered milk, right? It's for the poorest of the poor. Almost no one eats it except the very, very poor. You can imagine this little boy. He must have felt so insignificant, so unworthy, so useless to God. Some of you here probably feel that same way. But do you know what happens when he connects to the power of Jesus? Do you know what happens when he gives his five loaves and two fishes? When he gives everything he has to Jesus? 
there is this amazing miracle. These five barley biscuits and two sardines feeds 5,000 men. That doesn't even include women and children. Almost 15,000 people are fed from this little boy's lunch because he was willing to give up his loaves and his fishes to Jesus. You know, there are great problems in this city. There are great problems in this world. Murder, rape, abortion, divorce, human trafficking. I mean, it could go on and on and on. And we look at our barley loaves and we look at our fish and we say, really, what can I do? What can I do? It's so little compared to this amazing problem. But what happens when we give these things to Jesus? When we say, Jesus, these belong to you. What happens when we give our five biscuits and two sardines worth of talent to God and say, God, do with my talent whatever you want. You gave me these gifts. They are for you to use at your disposal. What if we give God our five biscuits and two sardines worth of time to God? And we say, Lord, I have controlled my schedule. It has been all about me and accomplishing what I want. But you know what, God? I am giving my calendar to you. Whatever you want to do with my day, I will give it to you to do. What if even we gave our five biscuits and two sardines worth of money to God? And we said, Lord, this is the money you've entrusted to me. It doesn't even belong to me anyways. It belongs to you. My money is for you to use. You know, while we're being so honest this morning, one of the things I hate talking about, and this is my own sin, I hate talking about tithing. I hate talking about it because I feel like a man just asking for money. But I know that those who do not do this are enslaved in sin. See, throughout Scripture, even from the very beginning, there was Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel. With Cain and Abel, you see tithing. And you see it with Melchizedek. And then you see it through the Levitical system. And then you see it even in the minor prophets, they're rebuking the people. They're called to give 10% of their money to God, to the church, to missions. People say, you know, that's just an Old Testament thing. It doesn't apply to the New Testament, as if they're two different stories, right? But even in the New Testament, Jesus reaffirms it in Matthew 23, 23, saying that they should continue to tithe. But we don't want to give up our two sardines. We don't want to give up our five fish. We want to hold them so closely because we need it. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know who gives what money unless you tell me. And for some reason, people tell me, and I almost, I don't want to know. I don't know what you give, so I'm not, this isn't for you personally, unless God has it intended for you. But I'm sure you have great excuses. You have great reasons of why life is difficult. You justify it, you know. Money is tight. We need a $40,000 car. We need to go on these amazing vacations. Following Jesus is inconvenient. I don't know how else to say it. God calls us to a ministry that is inconvenient. God calls us to be conduits, to give all of ourselves, our time and our talents and our treasure to him, to give him our five loaves and two fishes that he might multiply them for his glorious plan of redemption. You know, there is no missionary that should have need because the American church is so wealthy. We've been given so much and so much is required because of that. Finally, we see the culmination of ministry. So we've seen the call to ministry, a call to inconvenience and sacrifice, the conduit of ministry, which is the saints 
through the power of God when we give him our five loaves and two fishes. And finally, the culmination of ministry. Why do ministry? Why be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, it sounds like it's inconvenient, which it is. It sounds like it is a sacrifice, which it is. Why in the world would I do it? Why not just keep all my sardines, keep all my bread, keep all my talents, keep all my treasures? Why participate in ministry? Why not just focus on resting and retiring? It's a great question. There's two reasons from this passage. And these are important because these are all heart issues, okay? The first is the privilege of participation. Read along with me, verse 10 through 13. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And again, the other gospel accounts tell us that that doesn't include the women and children, so probably 15,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And then they had eaten their fill. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You know, why didn't Jesus just set up a buffet? Right? I mean, like, that would be pretty easy. Let me break this bread. I'll put it in the bucket. You come by, you pick it up, and the bucket will never run out, right? Or in the Old Testament, he just put the bread on the grass, and they, they came and eat it. Why, why, did, why did Jesus not do it that way? Why did he have them sit down? Because he wanted his disciples to participate in the miracle, to have the joy and awe of participating in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the disciples? Philip saying, hey, Andrew, you still got bread left? You know, yeah, I'm not running out. You know. And then then notice the number of baskets they pick up. Twelve basketfuls. One for each disciple. One for each disciple to understand the abundance of, of God's love, the abundance of Jesus's provisions. You know, the disciples did not perform the miracle, but they got to participate in it. I have some close friends who want to remain anonymous, so they will, but they love to minister to elderly people in their small little town. They go visit them on a weekly basis. Well, when Christmas came along, they knew that many of these elderly folks had no one in their life that would give them gifts. And so they decided we're going to go out and we're going to buy some gifts. And so they went out and they bought some gifts and they wrapped them. And then they, then they grabbed their grandchildren, and their own grandchildren, not someone else's. They grabbed their grandchildren and they got in the car and they drove up and they had the little grandkids get out and take the present up to the door, knock on the door and leave it for the people. Now, none of those people would have assumed that a five-year-old or a six-year-old bought them the present, wrapped it, gave it to them. But they wanted them to participate in this blessing. God could do all these miracles without us. He could, but he doesn't want to. He wants you to receive the joy of participating in the miracles that God has given to us. When you are inconvenienced for the sake of ministry, when you sacrifice for the sake of ministry, when you connect to the source of ministry and have the power of God flowing through you to hurt people, There is a great joy and a satisfaction. Your hands may be tired. Your legs may be tired. Your eyes may be tired. Your mind might be tired. But your heart will be full. And so the first reason we should inconvenience ourselves for the sake of ministry is we get to 
privilege of participating in the miraculous, redemptive work of God. The second is this. It brings praise to the prophet. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, Jesus, not the disciples or the little boy, but the the, the miracle Jesus did, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? Who is the prophet? Well, if you back up to the Old Testament, you may remember the people of God were in slavery for 400 years, and they came out of Egypt. And two and a half months after their exodus out of slavery, they start to grumble and they start to say, we're hungry. And so in Exodus 16, we read, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion, just a day's portion, every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my way or not. So God agreed to provide this miracle of providing bread for the people. He put it out on the grass. They picked it up. They ate it. They were full. And they're only to bring a day's portion. Now, later in the life of Moses, we read this prophecy from God spoken through Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so for centuries, the people of God have waited for the prophet, not a prophet, but the prophet, the greater Moses, the one who would not just bring enough bread for a day, but the one who would make bread that would fill their bellies. You see, Jesus explodes people's expectations of the Messiah. He doesn't just give them enough to eat. He waits till they're full, till they're fat. This isn't a school cafeteria meal. This is a Thanksgiving meal, and there are leftovers. Jesus doesn't just make wine. He makes the best wine. Whatever your hope and dream is for a Messiah, for a Christ, for a Savior, they pale in comparison to the goodness of the real one. Jesus is that good. And so Jesus blows their mind. Jesus is greater and more wonderful. And when we minister in his name, we direct glory and praise to him. Verse 15, final verse. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, the people wanted to force Jesus into an earthly kingship because he was that wonderful. One of the amazing connections that they made is that the prophet is also to be the king. This is true. But there's also a third office for the Savior that was to come. He's to be a prophet. He is to be a priest. Oops. And he is to be a king, a prophet, a king, and a priest. And so Jesus still had to fulfill his priestly duties. He still had to become the sacrifice for our sin. And the greatest display of ministry the world has ever seen, Jesus went to the cross. I guarantee you it was inconvenient. It was sacrificial. It was a compassionate ministry. And because at the cross, Jesus endured this great, inconvenient, sacrificial, wonderful, glorious ministry for the redemption of mankind, this is our motivation for ministry. Nothing but the cross will call us into a ministry that is inconvenient and sacrificial. That is the ministry our king has had for us. He came not to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome, 
but from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. That we could be connected to God, the power source, and do and participate in this amazing ministry of reconciliation. So let's recap. The call to ministry is a call to inconvenience and sacrifice. The conduit of ministry power are God's saints when we give them our five loaves and two fishes and say, here it is, use it. The culmination of ministry is the privilege of participating in God's miracle of redemption and in bringing praise to the true prophet, the great Moses, Jesus Christ. Let me end with this illustration. One day in Bristol, England, there was a man named George Mueller. And he looked down the street and saw hundreds of homeless children. And he was so moved with compassion. He was called to do something about it. But the problem was this. George Mueller literally only had two pence in his pocket. That's two pennies. But he knew he was called by God. And he wanted to be a conduit of God's grace and love and mercy. And so he began to pray. God gave God his two penances, his five loaves and two fishes. And he said, God, do with it what you will. I'm going to follow your call. And God multiplied it greatly. And there is story and story and story again of what God had done miraculously through this man's life who gave to him, who gave to God his five loaves and two fishes. Let me just share with you one of those stories. There was an occasion when he had the orphans gathered around. And they gathered for dinner, but there was no food on the table. But he prayed, and he thanked the Lord for the food that they were about to eat, not knowing where that food was coming from. And as he said, amen, there was a knock on the door. I know, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But this is the God that we serve. There was a knock on the door. A delivery truck had broken down outside, full of milk and food and groceries, And it was all going to spoil. And so the man gave the food to the orphanage, and they ate. Now, your story may not be dramatic in that way, but God wants to use your five loaves and two fishes to do something far beyond your expectations. After 60 years, beginning with those two penance, George Mueller had the privilege of participating in God's miraculous work of ministering to, feeding, housing over 10,000 orphans. Some of you listen to this sermon, and it is scary. Because you know you have major life change if you want to give your life to Christ. If you want to surrender everything, you know it means major altercations in your life. In your desperate need, you want to cling to the five loaves and two fishes that God has given to you. My prayer is that God would change our hard heart. Because you know what? All of us struggle with this. All of us do. That God would change our hard hearts. That we would surrender our five loaves and two fish to the Savior. That we might be conduits of his redemption. For his joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we covered some difficult things today. Lord, some things that are challenging. Some things that we may not want to hear. And yet we know that there's nothing more glorious than participating in your plan of redemption. There's no other thing that we would be more joyful doing, God. Help us not just to leave this message from your word on the shelf, 
Help us to put it into practice for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.